week, we started a series that I've been really excited about that's called The Name of the Lord. And uh, we had just completed uh, a, a series about two and a half months of going through the Ten Commandments, and that was a, a great experience. That was a great uh, series of messages that God had for us uh, in that time. Uh, but I believe with all my heart that we will better understand God's commandments because it's His commandments that reveal His character to us, and we'll better understand His character when we understand His name and the power that is in uh, His name. So I'm excited with you to be in this series the next few weeks called the name of the Lord and what this series is all about uh, is getting to know God through his name and this is huge in having a, a relationship with God and so today we're going to look at it from the standpoint of what God's uh, God's name says to us about his love what God's name says to us about how much he actually loves you and and cares about you and hopefully today before we leave here we're going to answer some questions today like uh, how can I know that God loves me. I often have people come and ask me, you know, I, 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 how do I know that God loves me? How do, I, how do I feel God's love in my life? And so hopefully we're going to be able to answer that today. What do we do when we can't feel God? What do we do when we can't feel God's uh, love in our lives? And when it comes to love, I'm sure that most of us have had some experience in that, right? I mean, as human beings, it's kind of uh, knit into us, and so we've all had experiences with love, and I'm sure at some point in your life, you probably have expressed love towards someone, and they not expressed that back to you. Now, I don't know, I'm just going out on a limb to say, but there's probably someone in your life in the past that you loved and you pursued and they did not reciprocate that love back to you. Maybe it was a girl or a guy that you were absolutely crazy about. And anytime you got around them, your heart fluttered. You started having these feelings of, uh, of love. And, and no matter how much you pursued them, no matter how many little notes that you wrote, will you go with me, yes or no, you know, no matter what you seem to do, uh, it was always no. It was never, you know, expressed back to you from that person. I remember as a kid, and I probably shouldn't tell you this, but y'all know how messed up I am, and you are more messed up, so it's all good. But when I was a kid, I had a poster in my bedroom of Farrah Fawcett, right? I, I mean... Don't judge me, you bunch of hypocrites, because I know you all had posters in your room that if the Lord came back, you would want to jerk down real fast. But anyway, I had Farrah Fawcett in my room. I had this infatuation with Farrah Fawcett, and not only was it me, but it was every little, every little boy, every teenage boy that was alive back in the day when Farrah Fawcett, you know, was at her prime. Uh, you know, it, it was it just what it is. And of course, you know, she... She was the, uh, the most beautiful thing I had ever seen, but I had not yet met Lynette, my wife. And, and so, <laughs> I need to get, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm getting smarter, Frank. I'm getting smarter. As I get older, I get smarter. 
But you know what? It really didn't matter how infatuated I was with Farah. It didn't really matter how much I loved Farah. It didn't really matter how, you know, I dreamed up in my mind how awesome it would be to be Farah's guy, you know. There was never going to be a time when those feelings were going to be reciprocated, right? There was never going to be a time when Farah not, not only didn't feel about me the way I did her, but she was never even going to know me. And, and so we all know what it's like, I believe, to to love someone who doesn't love us back. And I think one of the most mind-blowing things in Scripture is this. As we, as we go through Scripture and we look at God, and we look at God as who He is and what He's done, we see God as this almighty King of kings, right? He's the Lord of lords. He's the creator of all things. He's the ruler of the universe. And He needs absolutely nothing. He doesn't need anything, and he never will, but he puts himself into this position of loving people that may never love him back. He puts himself in that position. We see all throughout the Bible that God is constantly reaching out and loving people who may or may not ever love him back. And when we realize that about God... When we begin to recognize that that is who he is and that is what he does, when we understand this one thing about God and the kind of love that he has for us in our lives, it will change your life in a way that nothing else ever will. I promise you. And so we started this series last week with this statement, uh, and it's this. Whatever comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I hope before we get through with this series that this statement has really sunk into your heart, really sunk into your mind, and you understand it, realize it, and can prove it by the time this series is over. Because here's the deal. We tend to move toward whatever our mental image of God is. All right? We will resemble, don't miss this, we will resemble what we worship. We will resemble whatever it is that we worship in our lives. So how you see God, how you view God determines more about your life and more about your relationships than anything else ever will in your entire life. And when and if you come to know God as love... As a loving father, listen, that will give you a joy so many people are looking for. That will give you a freedom that so many people desire to have. You hear people shout. You see people cry when they sing that song. My chains are gone. I've been set free. You'll understand his freedom when you understand his love. You will understand your purpose in your life. Many people live an entire life and they never really fully understand what God's purpose was for their life. And it's so sad when they get to the end of their life and they really know, never knew what their purpose was. When you understand God's love, you'll understand God's purpose uh, for your lives. And it will redefine you and it will also affect every relationship that you have in your life. 
It will transform you into being like God. You will resemble who you worship. And so if you're worshiping a loving God, then you will resemble what? You will resemble love. You will be a more loving person. The kind of person that I believe every single one of us wants to be. I think you get sick and tired of looking at the mirror and seeing yourself frown. <laughs> right? That's what makes wrinkles anyway. Some of you are so wrinkled up, you know, you'd look a whole lot better if you just smile. God wants us to look like him, and, and I believe we all want to be that way because here's what I know about you. You long and you desire to be loved. He created us that way. That's knit uh, 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 in the fabric of who we are. We all just want to be loved. And so uh, in our text that we're looking at in this series, last week we saw Moses ask God. He said, God, I want to see you for who you really are. I want to see you in your fullness. I want to see your glory. And so God says, well, I'm going to do the best that I can do because if you really see me, then it'll kill you. And I don't, I don't want that for you and you don't either right now at this point in your life. And so God basically puts Moses into a cave, into a, a cleft of the rock, right? He puts his hand over Moses, and in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19, it says this, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim what? My name. It's more important, Moses, that you understand my name than it is to see me. My name is what is important here, and so I'm going to pass by you, and I'm going to proclaim to you my name, the Lord. That's how I'm going to reveal myself to you. My goodness, Moses, don't miss this. My goodness is expressed in my name. Then our theme verse for this series that we're looking at every week, Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 5, says this. Then the Lord came down in a cloud, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming what? Proclaiming his name. His name is the Lord, the Lord. And anytime you see in Scripture the, the Lord's name in all capital letters like we see it here, it means Yahweh. Okay, and Yahweh simply means I am. So God is saying here, it's all about my name, and my name is I am. And I am the, a compassionate and a gracious God. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And when we stopped there last week, uh, we almost... Uh, it was almost like there was a contradiction there. And I would encourage you, if you weren't here last week, you really, I, I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to the message from last week. It's on our website. Uh, if you do podcasts, you can look up Greenbrier Nazarene on your podcast. I really encourage you to go back and listen because this was kind of an introduction last week of everything that we're talking about over these next few weeks. So what is it here, though, that dominates the description and the name of God here in this passage? It's love, right? It's love. And here in just a few verses, we see God trying to uh, define his name, trying to give us a description of his name. And, and, and he gives us several examples here of his love. And I want us to just look at those real quick before we move on. The first thing God says about his name is this. He says, he is compassionate and he is gracious. Right? 
And at first, at first glance, that may seem to be a little redundant or, or a little repetitive, but the original Hebrew words that were used here are very different. And, and so the word that's translated compassion, or maybe in the translation you're looking at this morning, it may be merciful, but the Hebrew word that is translated there is, is this. It's, it's about a feeling, all right, a feeling of being compassionate. And then the Hebrew word that is translated gracious here is about the action that you take when you feel compassion. Okay, so don't miss this. Don't miss what God is saying here. God says, I, I, I feel your pain. God's, God's felt his people's pain. And then what did he do? When he felt their pain, he acted on their behalf. He saw us in our pain. He saw us in our bondage. He saw us in our, our suffering, and he couldn't just sit back, right? The compassion that he had for us, well, what did it do? Well, it caused him to act and deliver us from whatever, what, what it is. Now, the next description that we see here, and I love this, and I want you to, I don't want, I want you to get this this morning. It says, he is slow to anger. Now, when I said whatever you think of when you think of the name of God is, is, is important, a lot of people, when they think about God, they think about God as judge, right? They think about God as, especially in the Old Testament, if you look, you might think of God as being an angry God. But God here is describing himself as love, and he also says that he is slow to anger. His love does not keep him from being angry, his love, it says, makes him slow to it. And I want you to think about this this morning. God is angry about what? He's angry about sin. That's what makes him angry. He's not angry at us. He's trying his best to tell us he loves us. He cares for us. He's, he's gracious and compassionate and merciful toward us. He loves us, but he hates our sin. But his love for us is greater than that. Think about it like this. When you really love someone, sometimes it will cause you to be angry about certain things. You know, it's because I love my kids that I get angry at anything or anyone that might try to do damage to my kids. Right? I'll get angry with you if you start trying to hurt my kids or destroy my kids. I want what's best for my kids. It's, it, it's kind of like this. Maybe a better example is this. It's like when someone that you know gets cancer. Do you get angry at them because they've got cancer? No. You get angry at the cancer that's destroying their body and making them sick and causing them to go through whatever it is that, that they're going through. God doesn't get angry at you. And I think we need to understand and realize this. God doesn't get angry at you. He gets angry at what's destroying you. He gets angry at what it is that's eating, eating at you and doing damage to you and your lives and your, and your families. And so God gets angry about sin because he loves us. He's slow to anger. And then he tells Moses that he's abounding in love and faithfulness. Some translations uh, say that he is steadfast. Well, what does that mean? It means it does not change, right? It does not change and it does not end. It does not change based on his mood. 
It does not change based on how worthy you are or how well you acted today. It does not change. It's kind of like being a, a, a parent. It's next to impossible to stop loving your children, even when they do the dumbest things. We still love them. King David says it like this in Psalm 103 and verse 13. He says, as a father has compassion, there's that word again, right? That feeling that he has for us. A father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. There's probably nothing more that has taught me about the love of God than being a parent, <laughs> right? And those of you that have been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is just something about it when you see one of your kids get hurt or you see them suffer, even if it's something they cause themselves, even if it's something that they brought on uh, themselves. And every parent knows this, and it's not just rhetoric. It's not just something that we say, kids. You'll understand this someday. But if we could take the pain or the hurting away that they're going through, we would do it. We would do it. We had rather be hurt than to see our children hurt. That's compassion. That's the kind of, of compassion and love that a parent has for a child. And that's the kind of compassion and that's the kind of love that God has for us. And he's saying here, and it doesn't change. Your dumb mistakes, the things that you do that bring this on yourself. I love you. I love you anyway. It's not going to change. It's never going to change. Listen how Isaiah says it in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. It says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, look, I will not forget you. That's a promise. Underline it. Write it down. Whatever you got to do to be reminded. I will not forget you! Exclamation point. God says to you, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. He has actually made us a part of who he is. The Bible says that he even knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows the number of your heads, hair on your heads. He knows if a single hair falls off your body. He knows you that well. And I believe me, in the 15 some odd years that I was a youth pastor, I encountered a lot of overbearing and obsessive parents during that time. But I don't know a single one who knew their child that well. Right? That, that who, who knew when a single hair would fall from their head. But that's how God knows you. That's how God feels about you. And his love is so amazing that, that it, it can't even, you know, be explained adequately in words. I would stand up here today and struggle trying to tell you how much God loves you. I could say it over and over and over again, but that doesn't mean that you would understand it or you would experience. And, and so God knew. He said, this is something that has to be felt. This is something that has to be experienced. We talked about last week seeing people get emotional as they talk about God or as they worship to see tears stream down their face. They have experienced the love of God. Right, And until you have experienced that and you have sensed that, you cannot be close 
to God and feel his presence in your lives until you understand who he is. And that understanding comes in his name. And so when God begins to describe his love, he understands it can't just be done with words. So here's how we're going to do it. We're going to do it through stories. We're going to do it through situations. We're going to do it through everyday life. And we're going, he said, and, and through his word, he's going to show us his love in ways that we can sense it and ways that we can relate to it and ways that we can experience it. And so I want to look at a couple of those this morning, and I'm going to go as fast as I could possibly go this morning. But I think that when we look at a few of these stories from the Bible, that then we will better recognize God's love for us. The first is in the story of Jonah. And Hunter, our uh, creative arts pastor that, that leads us in worship, he, he wrote a blog this week. Uh, it's out on our website. It's on our, our app if you've got that. Uh, but he, he uh, uh, shared this story about Jonah uh, this week in, in uh, the blog. Many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah. It's one of the first uh, stories we learn as little children in the church about Jonah and the whale, but just in case not, kind of here's the, the gist of it. God called a man named Jonah. Uh, he was a prophet. God called him to preach. And he basically came to Jonah and he said, Jonah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to preach to uh, these people in a country called Nineveh. I want you to preach a salvation message. I want you to go be a missionary and preach salvation to the Ninevites. And as we read the story, we see that Jonah's not all about that, right? He, Jonah don't want to go. He don't want to go preach salvation to the Ninevites. And on the surface, when we look at that, we think, well, you know what? Jonah wasn't a very good preacher. Because when you become a preacher, you kind of make this commitment to go wherever it is that God calls you to go or God sends you. And, and just go. But we see here that Jonah wasn't a good little preacher boy. And he's like, I, I, I don't want to go. And so we kind of, you know, think bad of Jonah for being that way. But let me tell you something. You can't judge Jonah until you've been in his shoes. And to understand why Jonah didn't want to go is so very important. Because here's the deal. These Ninevites were evil. They were cruel. They were close neighbors to the nation of Israel. And they had done some very horrific and terrible things to the, to the Israelites. Lynette and I were talking about this yesterday. I was sharing with her what I was preaching about. And she said, you know, I read in a Bible study one time that one scholar believed that Jonah's uh, father had been killed by the Ninevites. And so it, it kind of explains to you, and I want you to get a kind of a, a better picture of this. There's some things, some writings that historians have found through archaeological uh, discoveries that were made over in this area. And, and here's just some writings from some of the leadership and kings of Nineveh at the time that all this was taking place. Maybe this will give you a little clearer picture of why Jonah don't want to go. Here's, here's what they wrote. A mountain of heads I erected in, a mountain of heads I erected in from the conquered king's city. Their use and their maidens I burnt up in flames. So they had erected a mountain of heads, basically, and had killed a lot of the, the youth and young women by burning them up in fire. I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth 
earth, their hands I cut off. I flayed a conquered king. He's talking about one of the kings that they uh, tortured. His skin, I spread his skin upon the city wall. I pierced his uh, chin with my dagger. This is another king that he's talking about. I pierced his chin with my dagger. Through his jaw, I passed a rope. I put a dog chain upon him and kept him in a kennel in the city square. I tied them up and made them listen to a Frozen soundtrack both day and night. Now, one of these is false, (laughs) but they all bad. Really, really bad. So can you see now why Jonah might not want to go? Can you begin to understand a little bit more of this from Jonah's perspective and and his shoes? He doesn't want to go plant a church in Nineveh. He doesn't want to be a missionary in Nineveh. Jonah's like, you know what, God? To be perfectly honest with you, I don't even want those people to be saved. Why don't you just strike them all down with a bolt of lightning? I don't want them to be saved. I want them to die. And so what does God do? He brings about this whole whale incident, right? And, And Jonah gives in, basically, and, and he goes in and he preaches to him. Why does he do it? Not because he loves them. He doesn't do it because he loves them, but basically because he doesn't want to be whale bait, right? And, and so God, God uses him, and, and we see that they repent, and look at this in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But, Jonah, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and, and it made him angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are, don't miss this, almost a direct quote of Exodus 34, 6. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah finds God's love almost scandalous. How could God love such evil? How could God love these Ninevites? And the irony in this book is that Nineveh is not just some random bad city that God chose to love. Listen, Nineveh represents every one of us. It's not that God finds it somewhere in his heart to love a few bad people along with us good people. He only loves bad people because that's the only kind of people there are. None of us are good. No, not one. We often read this story, I believe, and we relate ourselves to Jonah. You know, wanting to be disobedient. And and I believe often when we we read the story and we hear the story, we can kind of relate to Jonah. But I'm here to tell you today, we're Nineveh. We're Nineveh. And God knew some things can't be explained. They have to be felt and they have to be experienced. And so God put Jonah in a situation with people that Jonah would have never chosen to forgive. He put him in a situation with people that he didn't really like. And he says, Jonah, this is you. And I won't stop loving you. 
And maybe you're here today and you've been hurt deeply. Maybe you've been betrayed by some. Maybe uh, someone, maybe it was a son, maybe it was a daughter, maybe it was a parent. Maybe a friend hurt you deeply. But you can't stop loving them. And you keep reaching out to them. Then you get a taste of God's love for you. Another story that's an awesome illustration of God's love and I've preached a message on this entire story before, but it's the story of Hosea. Hosea was another prophet of God, and he got a really strange and difficult request from God when he went into ministry. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, God said this, Go and marry a prostitute. Bet Hosea didn't see that coming. (laughs) So that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Hosea, when you get out of seminary, when you get all educated up and you get your license and you get ordained... I want you to go pastor over here in this place, and I want you to be the pastor of this church, and I want you to marry a prostitute who is going to cheat on you later on in your marriage. Now, this is a crazy story, right? This is kind of a crazy uh, uh, thing for God to even ask anybody to do. I mean, good grief. You want me to go marry a prostitute? And she's going to cheat on me. And, and, but here's the deal. Hosea was obedient. He did what God told him to do. And he goes and marries this prostitute. And her name is Gomer. And it's bad enough that she's a prostitute. But even worse, her name is Gomer. I mean, how would you even like to be married to a woman named Gomer? <laughs> but here's the awesome thing about it is... Hosea isn't just going through the actions of being obedient to God because God said do it. Hosea is actually genuinely falling in love with Gomer and they have kids together. And then as you read the story, sure enough, what God said happened was going to happen, happened. And she cheated on him. She eventually leaves Hosea for another man, and he abuses her, and he won't provide for her and her needs, and she's in a really horrible situation. And all throughout the book, all throughout the story, we read that Hosea begs for her to come back, you know, and she won't do it. Hosea gives this man that she's living with, this man that's abusing her and and that she's staying with, Hosea actually gives this man money so that he'll take care, better care of Gomer and provide for her. And Hosea doesn't even know. I mean, uh, Gomer doesn't even know that this money is coming from Hosea to provide for her needs. This man gets tired of messing with her, and he's used her and abused her all he wants to. And so he decides to sell her back into sex trade slavery. And uh, God tells Hosea, Hosea, go buy her back. I want you to go buy her back. Isn't this a crazy story? And and, and I can just imagine Hosea saying, go buy her back. Why should I go buy her back? She, She was mine, and she got herself into this mess. 
she was mine and she, she put herself in, you know, this, this situation. And so God, now you want me to go buy her back after all I've done and all that she's done? And scholars kind of tell us what this scene would have looked like back in this day, back, back in the ancient time. The, the slaves would be put up on an auction block, basically, and they would be stripped down totally naked so that the buyers could see exactly what it was that they were getting. And all of these men had gathered around the auction block there as Hosea's wife stood there naked. And Hosea stands there thinking, she's cheated on me. She's left me. She's betrayed me again and again and again. And there she stands naked before all these men who are bidding on her, who have no intentions other than to do more harm to her and to abuse her. And Hosea has got to be embarrassed. He's got to be uh, having some doubts about what God has called him to and what God is asking him to do. But Hosea speaks up and he says, tells the auctioneer, he said, whatever the highest bid is, I'll beat it. I'll make her mine again. You see, what God was trying to do was to reveal his love to Hosea. He was trying to uh, reveal his nature to Hosea, and, and not just to Hosea, but to us this morning. And, and he's saying this, Hosea, listen, you and I have both given our hearts to people who have rejected us. We have both loved people who would not love us back. But Hosea, here's the deal. We're going to spend all of our time and we're going to spend all of our money and we're going to spend all of our, all the effort that we have pursuing them and going after them anyway and buying them back if we get the opportunity. And Hosea, until you experience this, until you experience that, you're never going to understand my love. You're never going to understand how I feel about you and how I feel about my people. In fact, I think the greatest verse in Hosea and maybe even in all the Old Testament is in Hosea chapter 11 and verse number 8. He says, oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I, I let you go? My heart is torn within me and my compassion, it overflows. Listen, don't miss this. This is how God feels about his people. This is how God feels about you this morning. In fact, Gomer's name, you know what it means? It means completion. God's love cannot be complete until he has bought us back. God's love cannot be complete until he saves us. Even if we are the greatest source of pain in his life, even if we brought it on ourselves, Jesus said from the cross a blanket statement that applied to every single one of us here today. Father, Forgive them. Donald Barnhouse puts it like this, and I think this is so perfect. The pursuing love of God is the greatest wonder in the spiritual universe. When we see this love at work through the heart of Hosea, we may wonder if God is really like that. 
but he is. Think about it. Many years later, he would give man the trees of the forest and the iron in the ground. He gave them the ability to form that iron into nails and to fashion those trees into a cross. Then he stretched out his hands upon that tree and allowed us to nail him there. And in doing so, he took our sins upon himself. This is our God and there is no one else like him. Listen, God is not some angry God. In the story of the prodigal son, and I know I'm running out of time, in the story of the prodigal son, after the son had walked away from everything, he had walked away from the dream life. He had ran away uh, from his family. He had done everything bad that anyone could possibly do. He comes back to his senses, and he is complete, completely broken. He found himself in a pig pen, eating slop with the hogs. That's where we end up when we're disobedient to God and we run away. We end up in a mess. And he decides then to return home. We see in the story, the father has been watching. The father has been waiting. And he's standing out there and he sees his son coming down the road and he's just a shell of the man that he was when he left. And he sees him coming and he's, he's poor and he's broken. He's shattered. He's nasty. He's worn out. He's hurt. He's been suffering. And what does the father do? Does he turn around and go back in the house shaking his head? No. He runs. Scripture says he runs toward him. He runs to him, which would have been unheard of. Men back in that day did not run because if they would have run, they would have pulled their tunics up and exposed their legs and maybe anything else that might be under that tunic. And so men didn't run back in that day. And it says the father pulled up his tunic and he ran to the son. Listen, this is how Jesus, your father, Father feels about you. The cross was our Father running to us. So I've got two questions for you today. Number one is this. Do you believe in the steadfast, never-ending love, never-changing love of our Father? These stories that I've shared with you this morning, they're about you. They're about his love for you. You are Nineveh. The, that God comes to forgive even though one, no one may even understand why. Why would God choose to save them? Why would God choose to forgive them? But yet he does. You're Nineveh. You're Gomer, who he won't and he can't let go of. And like Gomer... He took us all when we were naked. He took us all when we were ashamed. He took us all in our filth and our unrighteousness. And what did he do? He bought us back. And he clothed us. Not with our own unrighteousness, but with his righteousness and his goodness. You are the prodigal son. And the father is standing on the porch looking and waiting longing for you 
to come home. Listen, I get it. Sometimes we don't feel God. Sometimes we don't feel uh, the love of God. There are days when I don't feel it, honestly. But it's on those days when we simply must look at the cross. Jonathan Edwards said it beautifully. He said, my perception of the love of God is not based on how I feel at the moment or how well my life is going. It is based on the God who sought me and he bought me and forgave me at the cross. If you base your perception on the love of God based on your feelings or based on your circumstances, you're never going to feel him. You're never going to feel secure. You're never going to feel the love that he has for you. But if you base it on the settled work that was done on the cross, <laughs> that will become a rock that will anchor your life through any storm that you may ever face or go through. His love has no end. It is steadfast. It will not change. It does not change. And it has no end. And the second question that I would ask you today is this. Have you embraced His love for you? Have you embraced His love for you? And, and, and we'll see this more next week. I hope you come back. But God won't force His love on you. You have to choose to receive it. Salvation is a gift. And it's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just believing in Him, it's trusting Him personally as your Savior. Christians, those of you that are here today, I would just ask you, are you renewing yourself in the reality of God's love every single day? Because let me tell you something, this gift is not just a one-time deal. It's not just a one-time experience. It's not just a once-a-quarter experience. It's not just a every Sunday when I go to church experience. It's a moment-by-moment -moment gift from your daddy. From the Holy Spirit. If you don't sense His love and live in awareness of it, I promise you that there's no way you'll ever feel close to Him until you recognize Him for who He is. And sense and understand His love. And people who only think about God as a judge or they only think about God as a creator or someone who's just out there somewhere, they never feel a sense of intimacy with Him. They never will. That's why some of you don't feel any emotion toward God because you only think of Him as creator or judge or out there. And you don't think of Him as Father and Lover and Savior. It's only when you see that you were Nineveh and that He saved you. You were Gomer. And he pursued you and bought you back. The prodigal son. And he longed for you to come home. That you 
will really develop the kind of relationship with him that he intends for us to have. The name of the Lord is love. Are you experiencing that in your, in your life today? And if not, you can. They're going to sing with us a little bit of that song that they sang during the offering earlier. And this morning, I can't help but feel that some of you have come to an understanding today that the Father is on the porch waiting and watching for you to return. And this morning, while they sing about the powerful name of God, maybe you would respond to the power and the work that He wants to do in and through your life by coming here to this altar today. Maybe you're here and you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would encourage you to come and do that today. There's really nothing special about the altars, but there's something special about being obedient to what our Father asks us to do. So maybe you need to come this morning and surrender your life to Him and experience and sense that love that He has for you in your life. But this morning, I encourage you to come because, listen, whatever comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about your life. Because how you see God and how you view God determines more about your life and your other relationships than anything else in this world ever will. So if you feel God calling you this morning or moving you or you would just like to come pray, I invite you to do that while they sing this morning.
thank you today for the reminder and maybe the wake-up call that your love for us doesn't change depending on your mood, your love for us doesn't change depending on how bad we may have messed up or what we've done. Your love is unending. Your love is unchanging. That's hard for us to understand, but God, thank you so much for being that way. Thank you so much for loving us when we're unlovable. Thank you for loving us when we do dumb things and we're not obedient to what you've called us to do and called us to be in our lives. God, I pray today, though, that in the power of the name of Jesus, that lives would be changed, that captives would be set free because they've seen and they've sensed and they've experienced your love here today. God, I pray that we would take you with us when we leave this place. Your presence and your power at work and, and in our lives is the only way that we can even get by each and every day. And we thank you for your presence and, and we just pray that you would uh, be with us as, as we leave this place. Yes, it's, it's powerful. Your presence is powerful in this place, but you don't stay here. You go with us as your church. You go with us as your children. So God, I pray that we would constantly be reminded moment by moment of your love. We would have a sense of intimacy and relationship uh, with you that would affect and, and impact uh, every decision that we make, everything that we do each and every day, God, that we would sense you in our lives so strong and so real that it would impact not only our lives but our relationships with other people. God, I thank you for what you're doing here today, for how you're drawing people you continue sit and wait and watch and call and woo and are willing to buy us back out of the slavery that we've put ourselves in, God. And we thank you for being a loving Father uh, that will do that. I thank you for what you're hearing today, doing here today and I pray that uh, you would just receive glory and honor in the days ahead from the changes that are being made here in this place today, the commitments that are being made here today, the prayers that are being cried out here today, God. There is power in the name of Jesus, and I pray that that power and your glory would be revealed in us and through us as we leave this place. God, you're so good. You're so good, and we love you so much, and we thank you again for your incredible and awesome love for us. It's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray today, and everybody said... Amen and amen. God bless you so much. I, I love you guys, and I hope you have an absolutely in, incredible week today.